thank you especially for being here and what I take to be some tremendous uh, interest in this topic. But I, 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 I'm always a little uh, um, intimidated by that because I, I, I know um, how much interest this is as a medical phenomenon. And so I, I want to begin with a caveat that I'm, I'm a historian, uh, not a doctor. So uh, I hope you knew that coming in. Um, and I hope that, um, but I do hope that, that what I have to say um, will actually um, challenge you to, to, to perhaps think about Alzheimer's, think about dementia in a new way. Um, but certainly I, I, actually, I actually think um, that uh, as the title indicates, questioning uh, the medical model can actually be, can actually give us grounds for some, for some hope that we uh, maybe hadn't uh, um, have, have sort of uh, ignored some sources of hope. Um, so what I'm going to try to do uh, um, in about uh, 10 or 15 minutes is briefly sketch out sort of my big historical argument about uh, why we're so concerned with dementia, why we're concerned about Alzheimer's disease, and then connect that to um, um, what has come to be a critique of the way our society has approached dealing with uh, Alzheimer's disease, dealing with dementia, which is a heavy, heavily uh, medicalized model. So the way I think, um, the, the, the quickest way to sort of summarize um, my historical argument is to explain a little. I don't think I can really get much into the sort of evidence I work with and so on. Lots of old dusty books and so forth. Uh, and, a, and a good dose of social theory about selfhood and cultural history and try to situate our, um, uh, the rise of dementia in that. But I, I can't really go through that. But what I, so what I'd like to do is try to t tell you how I got into this. Uh, so some more, a little bit more about my uh, background and why I uh, got interested in this topic. So that really comes from uh, more than 10 years working as a nursing assistant in uh, various hospitals where my typical assignment was um, generally uh, people with dementia was probably the most common kind of patient I took care of that might uh, sort of tell you something about uh, dementia's place in the medical hierarchy because I was as a nursing assistant I was not you know trained or highly skilled um, the thing for me was, so when I got back to graduate school, I, and I was uh, working in hospitals, this was in the uh, early 80s, and this was just the time period when uh, the medical establishment and society at large switched from uh, talking about uh, dementia as senility, as something somehow associated with aging, and began talking about it as a disease. I remember specifically uh, being brought into an in-service and, and sort of being uh, re-educated, uh, if you will, with what I had, what is really the central dogma, I would argue, of uh, the medical approach, which is that, you know, you've, you've grown up thinking this is senility, you've grown up thinking the, this, these symptoms uh, of dementia are associated with aging, but they're not. They're a discrete disease. Um, and we need to start thinking about it as a disease and treating it as a disease. So uh, when I got to graduate school as a historian, that transition, that moment, seemed like something really worth uh, explaining. And then when I started to dig into it, um, I started to think about the quality, actually the quality of my experience and interaction with um, patients with dementia. And for me, they were, um, they were really my favorite kind of patients. Uh, they're absolutely my favorite patients to take care of as a nursing assistant. Very high, uh, very labor intensive to be sure, uh, but emotionally it was very interesting. Um, I always really enjoyed uh, being able to work with whatever confabulations uh, they would give me. You know, I've got to get to work, I've got to get to work. Okay, I'll get you, I'll get you to work, you know, and I might set the guy up, you know, could him to get dressed and whatever and you know I mean he's in a hospital he has no idea where he is but he's he's feeding me something and I can work with it and our day goes quicker uh, and nicer um, and we sort of sort of have fun I can sort of you know play into that uh, maybe I set him up folding towels in the hall or something and you know um, I don't know makes the day go faster so for me 
Uh, this was very um, sort of, they were fun patients. Um, and I didn't really understand, it was obvious to me at the time, I didn't really understand why. Uh, that certainly, obviously not the case for families. Uh, and as I thought about it more in graduate school, it's, it's easy to see why. Families uh, could not, you know, I don't know what this man's history was that I set up folding towels in, a, in, in the hallway. He may have been a business ex executive or a career soldier or what, I, I don't know. For the family to see that is devastating because they're deeply invested in this, this uh, role that the person uh, had played. Um, so what really struck me is, is, is how, how, how clearly difficult and painful it was for families. And it had to do with um, this kind of social role of, of being a person, okay? And I could let them get away with anything, okay? As, as, as a nursing assistant, you know, if you wanted to, to uh, you know, obviously ignore the surroundings and whatever, I could, you know, I could go with that. And, you know, that was, that was all right. I could sort of just accept them as a person. For families, that could never be so easy because of the long history of relationships. Um, and that connects to um, theories about selfhood that have, be that have become increasingly dominant, the, really the social construction of selfhood. The idea that we are not, um, this is a long debate in Western society going back at least to Hume uh, in the 18th century, but, but kind of um, increasingly, becoming increasingly problematic. This idea that we are some essential, unified, um, immutable entity, a person. A person, you know, I'm, I'm always who I am. There's some essential thing that, that, I, that is me, right? And social theorists have increasingly challenged that idea and looked at how really that this uh, meanness, this, this, uh, this self emerges out of our social relationships, and it's really more of like a narrative process, right? And this is connected with, um, uh, in society um, in the West, and I, I focus on American society, uh, increasingly us being, as a society, being worried about what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be um, you know, am I really a, a person? Am I trustworthy? Am I solid? Am I the same person now that I was, you know, yesterday? Uh, and so w what I've come, those were sort of my motivations and sort of what really hooked me into this as a historical problem. And to sort of just abstractly lay the big argument out, it's that um, as our society becomes more and more worried about what it means to be a person and about whether people are in fact solid, dependable, stable, uh, consistent, coherent, or whether they're much sort of you know, crazier than that or made up uh, than that. Uh, in that kind of society, it's not surprising that uh, a, a, a cluster of symptoms um, that attacks your ability to tell a coherent story about yourself becomes increasingly frightened, you know, and all of this culminates uh, in the 1980s where, where interestingly enough, you know, postmodern theory is essentially denying the, even the possibility of selfhood on the one hand, that's going on in the academy. Society, you know, has lots of anxiety about uh, the stability of people. And Alzheimer's emerges as maybe the most frightening disease of all, the most frightening thing. And again, I think it's, it's rooted in this sort of existential fear we have in our society about what it means uh, to be a person. Okay, so that's kind of a big historical argument and kind of the personal uh, way it kind of developed for me, quite apart from all the uh, research I've done, which you could read about uh, in my book um, if you're interested. Shorthand is, you know, if this is the country of self-made men, and pardon the uh, gendered language, if this is the, the country of self-made people, a disease that attacks our ability to make ourselves through narrative and memory and all those cognitive abilities, is going to be absolutely frightened. So, history of a rising trajectory of 
senile dementia in its very, the various ways it's been categorized as a medical entity, culminating in this Alzheimer's, disease of the century, must be eradicated, must be, uh, you know, uh, researched, understood, wiped out. War on Alzheimer's. That's been the approach uh, since the 1980s. And um, as I suggest, it's, it's a, that war has been motivated by um, fear, by this intense existential fear that this is the worst of all possible things. I was, I suppose, well, I don't know. I, I don't really know if I sh would say lucky. Uh, I lost both my parents while I was actually working on the dissertation. Uh, neither of them, both of them died relatively young. Uh, they did not um, experience dementia uh, to speak of. A little bit of cognitive uh, decline, but uh, certainly nothing we, we, we would call dementia. But my father was absolutely friendly. He was crippled by rheumatoid arthritis, uh, <laughs> enduring pain. I can hardly even, uh, I, can, I just can hardly, it was like a living crucifixion, I, I would say. Meaning, hard for me to imagine you know, uh, <laughs> anything much worse. But for him, as long as my mind doesn't go, whatever else, if my mind goes, and so every time he forgot anything, every time there was a little slip, he was absolutely petrified of the idea of losing his mind. So um, that's been the kind of the, gener the, the sort of um, cultural energy, I think, behind how we've approached uh, Alzheimer's disease. And... Um, not surprisingly, uh, our response has taken a particular form. As I said, this is a disease to be eradicated, and um, it's also a disease that tends to uh, uh, completely devastate the person. I mean, you're, you're aware of the language that has surrounded this, the loss of self, uh, the mind robber, you know, uh, the... Uh, descriptions about, you know, this no longer really being a per the person I knew or a person at all, but like an empty shell. This kind of language, very extreme um, sort of representation of people with this condition. So in that kind of, you know, with that kind of fear, um, all the money's been aimed at research. Um, you know, research kind of took off around 1980 uh, when I think Spending was only, you know, actually I think 76, it was still less than a million. It's up to, uh, per year, uh, it's up to roughly 700 million uh, through uh, the late 90s, and now it's sort of stabilized uh, in that ballpark. Uh, something like $8 billion we've spent on uh, um, researching the biomedical um, this is a biomedical disease, a disease that we must, moral imperative, we must eradicate. Um, so going with that has also been really intense stigmatization of patients. Um, it's pretty, you can't, pretty much can't get more stigmatized than you're not really a person. Okay, that's the outer limit of stigma. Um, in that you can see, I think, uh, a desire to sort of make ourselves safe in an odd way. The pathology, this most frightening thing, is located in a very specific disease entity, Alzheimer's, uh, and it is, uh, you know, so the rest of us are okay. As long as I don't have Alzheimer's, I'm okay. But then if I have it, you know, there's, a, there's a, a sort of a representation that, like, it's, wow, downhill, it's pretty much an all-or-nothing sort of category. If you have Alzheimer's, it's, you know, the worst possible uh, thing. And the trajectory, it's hopeless uh, and inevitable. Given that, it's not surprising our investment has been overwhelmingly toward uh, cure rather than care. Of those eight billions I, I talked about in federal research money, and that's not counting uh, the money that uh, pharmaceutical industries have put in, um, there's, uh, uh, it's been almost completely about uh, the biological mechanisms and possible um, therapeutic pathways 
Um, so far, you know, we have uh, five drugs that have been licensed, none of them terribly effective. We could talk about what I know about as a historian in the Q&A a little bit. Uh, but, but again, not surprising, given the nature of the fear, given the belief that it's an all or nothing kind of diagnosis, uh, not surprising that it's all about cure rather than care, because life is over if you have Alzheimer's. Is, is, it's embedded in this narrative. You know, what I'm really talking about is cultural framing. Uh, you may remember George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant, and the idea is that when you use metaphors, they, uh, they evoke a whole system of meanings, right? And uh, you can't not think of those extra meanings. You know, like, don't think of an elephant. Of course, you think of an elephant. Um, when you talk about Alzheimer's as this dread disease, you can say, well, look, don't stigmatize the patient. But, <laughs> you know, given these kinds of representations of what the disease is, the stigma is almost inevitable. Um, and given that, the, that living with it is deemed to be virtually you know, impossible, or, or life is in some sense over, the investment has been, well, let's prevent it or cure it. You know, um, we spend a lot of money on care through Medicare. Uh, I think 160 billion is roughly the, the, the current amount, something in that ballpark. You know, and the numbers extended out are um, really frightening. And if you just play this game where Alzheimer's is a disease, if you get it, that's it. You know, do the math, it's not good. We're looking at over like a trillion dollar spending and, and it'll cost Medicare a trillion dollars by 2050, something like that. Now, I mentioned all that, that, so that is sort of my historical account of it. You know, this cultural fear and this fear driving a particular response. I argue that this response, and, and I join a lot of other people, and I've passed around a, um, a sheet with some extra readings. If you're, if you're more interested in this, uh, you can follow up on some of this in the, uh, in the things I have listed there. Uh, but I join a number of scholars from different disciplines, including clinicians, practitioners, uh, in feeling that there's something you know, fairly profoundly wrong with our approach. And let me just list them out, and we can, we can talk more about them uh, when I stop uh, doing all the talking, which should be soon. Um, first, um, this, uh, this putting de of dementia into a tight disease category, highly problematic uh, for all sorts of reasons. If you, if you look closely at the, uh, the scientific literature on this, there really is um, lots of grounds to doubt whether there is such a thing uh, as Alzheimer's disease. And just um, if I can tout a book, not my own, um, for a minute, um, this is the view of, um, that's developed this, this, this book that I would really uh, encourage you to take a look at if you're interested in this, called The Myth of Alzheimer's by Peter Whitehouse, who was a, a mentor and colleague of mine. Um, actually was one of the sort of founding scientists who uh, was really, really an important figure in the research industry, uh, in the scientific research, uh, in, the, in the research group that discovered the cholinergic deficit, which is the basis for most of the drugs that have been um, licensed to treat Alzheimer's. He has come to the position that there's at least as good a case to be made of viewing dementia as an extreme endpoint, ex an extreme variant of aging. It's not to say that it's an inevitable part of aging, like, for instance, uh, part of the inevitable part of aging is puberty, right? Every adolescent will go through puberty. It's not like that, obviously. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it does seem very difficult to distinguish the various pathologies from things that are going in people with uh, Alzheimer's, or who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's very difficult to distinguish those from uh, people who don't have it. So literally, if you, uh, there, there have been longitudinal studies, and this is a long finding, uh, but it's emerged and is stable, that you do not, if you, if you take uh, a sizable uh, population and you uh, follow them and test them um, through time and then take them to autopsy, 
you will find people who were not, did not have dementia, were, were not diagnosed as Alzheimer's. They will have the plaques and the tangles and the characteristic pathology to some degree. Significant numbers of them will have it. Uh, on this, by the same token, you will find people who were diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's um, who don't have it. I mean, it's not as though there isn't a correlation, but their correlation is very, very far from perfect. What does that, what does that mean about whether this is really a, a disease? Something worth uh, thinking about. The other thing is um, uh, it, we've really oversimplified the idea of what it means to have Alzheimer's. Uh, the way Peter describes it, that is to say we have this idea that well, if you get it, there's an inevitable and clear downward course. We have stages and you know, all the rest. It's very well regulated. In fact, if you study people over the long period, and Peter looks at several thousand uh, of patients that he has tested over a long period of time who've been diagnosed, the way he describes it is uh, he'll hold his hand up like this and say, you know, we think of it as a course. You get this disease and you follow a course. In fact, if you look at people's test scores, it's more like this. Yes, some people deteriorate quickly. Some people remain sort of baseline. Some people actually will improve, notwithstanding the fact that they have, uh, they have this diagnosis. So, it, so the experience of it is much more diverse than we've, uh, than we've allowed. Um, and that's something we really ought to challenge. It's, this is not a simple phenomenon. It's not a simple experience. And getting the diagnosis of dementia, is, of Alzheimer's, is not a clear predictor necessarily of how a person's going to do immediately over, the, over, the, over a fairly long amount of time. The trajectory is very, very uh, variable, very different uh, for every person. Last, um, I think that there's been, an, as, and, I, and I touched on this, there's been an impoverishment of care, both in terms of what we imagine about it, you know, what can care be, and what uh, could, um, uh, and, and, and quite literally the funding. You know, the, the, we, we ought to be, um, you know, a T.S. Eliot, I think, was asked at a lecture something like, you know, what's the solution to the problems you raise? You know, and he said, uh, you're thinking about that wrong. You know, there are some kind of problems for which they're not really solutions, but we should think about how we're going to be with them. And how we're going to be with them uh, can make all the difference. So we should look at ways that we can be with this uh, as a caregiver. I feel like, um, well, let me mention one example of the kind of creative approach I mean, and then uh, I want to hear what, what you think of all this. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, the Time Slips Project and Basting. Uh, this is a marvelous program. There's a website I have listed on the back of the sheet. Um, basically, Anne was a, she's a PhD in drama, actually, but she's always been involved in uh, uh, aging, aging services, and community theater. She was in this position of trying to have to sort of find some way to make institutional uh, settings more um, positive. So what she hit on was taking what was a, is actually a strength for people with dementia, which is lowered inhibitions. And, and using that uh, as a way to build an activity uh, that really emphasizes the skills and the, the abilities that they still have. So what they literally, they'll have some kind of crazy picture, uh, and they'll ask people to tell a story about it. And it doesn't matter if it's the staff or it's the person. And whatever people give them, they weave it together into a story, right? Uh, and whatever is said, now that's kind of the one rule, it has to be in the story. Uh, and um, they've, she's actually produced plays uh, based on this, uh, this process. Uh, very, it's been very positive. Probably the most impressive thing, the thing they've even uh, measured, is the degree to which it's uh, raised um, morale within uh, institutions. So, uh, so there's a lot going on and, and, and that I happen to know about and, and maybe things you know about uh, that, are, that are really creative possibilities uh, for dealing with this. But um, I'd like to hear from you. And 
So um, if anything I've said has surprised you or challenged or just needs clarification or your own experience, yes? Well, I think, I think yes, there have been, uh, you know, there's a classic model of disease. And this is partly why um, this goes with the, the metaphor of, frame, of framing this as a disease, partly why it's problematic is we think of diseases as having a single cause. You know, the classic model of disease is there's a germ. Uh, the germ causes the symptoms. You kill the germ, you kill the, you know. It's not like that. It's clear it's not like that with Alzheimer's. So there's a number of pathways that lead to someone's declining cognitive function. And there's no doubt that psychological um, problems, emotional problems, are part of that. So. I, Endpoint, that I'm a little sketchy on. But is it a contributing factor? I think, um, I, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, but yes, there is research out there that is correlating um, people who, who have suffered a kind of um, emotional pathologies. Yes, it is, they're more likely, you know, to end up with uh, dementia. But I wouldn't, I would hesitate if you, I don't know if your question was, is it sort of, part of the same entity. Um, well, uh, you know, I, 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 I would view it as a factor. I'm not a researcher, but I will tell you one interesting, excuse me, interesting historical thing. This has gone out of the literature now, so you won't find it. But if you go back to the mid-60s, there was a disease entity called pseudodementia. And what it was was people who appear to be demented, but they're not really. Uh, and what they are was, is depressed. And, they, and, their, and their motivation and their, um, uh, uh, the, yeah, the stress associated with it is so high that they, they actually appear demented but, but aren't really. And the way you can, there, there were several ways you bandied about to, uh, to find out which was which. One was uh, electroconvulsive therapy, shock therapy, uh, and if it cleared... Uh, then it was depression, and if it didn't clear, then well, then it was really dementia. I don't know what I think about that. Um, the other, the other way was to um, see if the person had insight about their problems. If they were aware that they were forgetful and, and insisted upon their inability to remember or their inability to calculate uh, sums or any, any of the cognitive symptoms you, that were being manifest. If they were aware of that then probably it was depression rather than dementia. So that's a lot of, pretty much all I know about it, not an answer. Uh, yes? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of medical, uh, there's a lot of literature in medical anthropology uh, that looks precisely at this because uh, it's been a point of contention. Um, I don't want to paint the uh, sort of mainstream um, Alzheimer initiatives um, in, 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 a in, in too negative a light. I really, I really don't. I mean, I, I actually think there's, and I don't want to sound either like I'm absolutely hostile to brain re research or something like that, but I, but, um, so bracket that and maybe come back to it. But, um, but there has been controversy, whereas uh, uh, there has been a tendency not to, as we would put it, or as international um, Alzheimer's advocacy movements have put it, there's been a failure to recognize uh, levels of dementia. Because, you, because there are, um, uh, India, for example, has ha had for a long time a vanishingly small rate of Alzheimer's. And the argument among people committed to the Western model was, well, they fail to recognize it for the sorts of reasons you say. But the other, the other thing that ought to be taken seriously, well, maybe the experience, maybe the phenomena of dementia is really different in a, in a society that's different, right? And not to valorize necessarily one or another. There's a lot of things that, that make it particularly difficult to deal with dementia uh, in our society that I dare say people don't want to give up. You know, we're relatively independent throughout our life course. I think most people probably like that. Um, uh, but, that, but that leaves people more isolated and sort of more uh, at risk, I think, 
when, when, if and when cognitive challenges occur later in life. So yeah, I absolutely agree with, with all you're saying, and there is, this is something being uh, studied. Uh, it's just more complicated, and, and uh, it may be that it's not recognized, but I think it also, there's also good evidence that uh, a richer care, caregiving environments are, and richer social environments, in fact, are preventative, and, and even for people who, who have clearly some kind of brain pathology, you know, some kind of brain challenges, um, there's really reason to think that they actually just do better, that, that it actually changes the course of the, of the uh, disease. So. Uh, you had your hand up a minute ago? I was going yeah. to ask about cross-cultural parts of the area. And, uh, there are significant differences, uh, say, in the Eskimos or the Chinese, and yeah, you've just addressed Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of really interesting uh, things going on. And a really interesting process going on because there is a, a desire, and I don't chalk it up to just a couple of uh, other, um, while we're going back to critiques of, of the medical model. Uh, there's a critique about the rational, you know, about it sort of leading to an irrational science. Uh, and particularly when you throw the power of the pharma, big pharma into the mix. There's a sense in which we don't really understand the mechanisms well, but we're going to cure it, so it's like throwing spaghetti in the wall. You know, we'll just see what sticks. And then that, that's, you know. So there's, there's, a, way, there's, there's a problem with uh, how we, we do this, and it's particularly compounded, as you probably know. There have been a number of controversies in the Alzheimer's field from the influence of big uh, pharmacy on the research process. And we could, I could talk some more about some of those cases uh, if you'd uh, like. But um, there is a process going on of trying to internationalize this and educate developing societies of the kind of problem they have. And this is, this is an encouragement. And, and again, I don't think it's some evil sort of plot of, of pharmacy just to increase their profits though that should be, you know, considered. But there's an honest, an honest desire to, 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 to tell people, well, you really have a problem. You're just not seeing it yet. Uh, and so it sort of works through the medical, the international medical community uh, and international uh, health advocacy organizations. And, and you know, we should, we should ask if that's, um, if that's appropriate or if we are, in fact, creating problems or encouraging other societies to recognize problems that, and repeat them the way we have. So, I don't know. Um, other questions, comments? Uh, yes? Well, it appears as though, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, problems with uh, Alzheimer's is, is uh, the problem of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And, and, and like, like with cancer, you know, we have a we have a lot of diseases which we know are caused by different kind of organisms, microorganisms, so on. So far, we have not really found anything definitively. We know about the papillomavirus and, mm -hmm. and cervical cancer. Okay, there's one rare instance, but this is, but this process of cancer, of course, we we group this into into a disease that is that is really very different. Cancer of the lung is very different from cancer of the kidney or these mm -hmm. other things. So probably Alzheimer's also has a similar kind of, you know, manifestation. Uh, and and uh, I think it's really difficult to diagnose something that we don't really clearly understand. When we look back and see how we uh, made inroads into TB and these other kind of things, we have found out about the organism. We have mm -hmm. been able to approach this. Right. With Alzheimer's, we probably don't know enough about how the brain works to be able to follow the transition of from very early stages, just like in cancer. We can't really do that. I mean, only when we see it manifested as, a, as an organ growing on your body can you then say, Okay, this is cancer, but we know that it's been growing for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's difficult to lump all kinds of things into, uh, into Alzheimer's when, as you're pointing out, 
it's quite a diversity of maybe different kinds of diseases that can come about by, you know, a number of things that we can, can see. And so I think there's a lot of complexity in this. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know whether you're advocating that we don't look for a cure for Alzheimer's or and just take care of the population or where should we put, be putting mm -hmm. our finances. Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I agree with, it, with how you've characterized it, and I'd like to sort of reiterate that, and then, I, yeah, I would like to, to make sure I, I'm fairly clear on, on what I'm, I'm advocating for or not, although it's not like the, I have a hotline to the NIA, and, you know, they call up historians and ask them what to do. Uh, but they will listen to all of us, you know, as, 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 uh, as, as a movement. So if we begin to demand a different sort of approach, I think it could, it, it could happen. But, but first, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, dr the dream of medicine is to find a linear, uh, is, to, is to find a single intervention into a linear process that makes all the difference, like tuberculosis. We know the germ. If we intervene at that point, kill that germ, we, we can eradicate the symptoms. That's, the, that's w what is hoped for. As you point out with cancer, it doesn't work that way. This is not a simple linear process that unrolls and cascades due to some single cause. There are environmental factors. There's, there's uh, clearly genetic factors. There's uh, probably, uh, possibly uh, pathogens as well and viral factors. All of these things to take into account. In the case of Alzheimer's, I think that it's that kind of complexity, but even greater because there's no doubt, as some people have pointed out, that psychological, emotional, social factors intervene too. They, those may operate in cancer to some degree as well. But, but in any case, I'm pretty doubtful that when you look at this complexity, that we're going to find, as with cancer, you know, there was a war on cancer, uh, and, and we have not to date found some simple, single point intervention that would really stop it. Um, instead, a whole lot of different pathways have been identified through which you could think about intervening. In the case of Alzheimer's, you know, people are thinking about, well, there's a neurotransmitter that appears to be low. Let's think about a, a way of, uh, of boosting that neurotransmitter. Maybe it'll help. Oh, it's this particular protein that seems overexpressed. Let's try to stop that protein. Oh, well, we noticed this buildup of, of a particular kind of metal. Maybe if we, you know, all of these different pathways. Um, they all might do a little good, but it, there's not going to be a single one that's going to like flip it and now we have the cure. So what we might get, I think, and I'm not for just pulling the plug on, on research, we might get useful medical interventions that get at parts of the problem. You know, particularly I think genetic research into the, the, the very clear uh, early onset variant. Um, you know, uh, when, when you see um, a heritable form of dementia that's occurring, you know, very early in, in, in the late 40s and early 50s, th there's been a gene associated with that, and, you know, that's a little promising. I mean, if they can figure that one out, maybe that's, but it's, but it's going to be pieces of it, right? It's not going to be that we're going to, that you're going to open your newspaper tomorrow and, you know, like, like it was with polio. You know, polio, they, they found that single point intervention. It's not, I just don't think it's conceivable in something this complex. What does that mean for funding? I think it means um, that, that we should be uh, more strategic in our research. As I said, there's this idea, because we're, we're approaching it uh, from our fear and from this sense that we, this is a thing that must be conquered now you know, and anything less is sort of unacceptable. With that in mind, like any approach, fund, well, fund it, what the heck, you know? Uh, and, and, and it's being, so the research has been driven and funded by this fear and need for a cure rather than some sense of the science being ripe. So we should probably, I would, you know, if, it, if I had my way, uh, we would sort of sort of reevaluate strategically what, what sort of research things seem to be getting at some mechanisms and really start to, to, 
to investigate those and not just be going in every which, which direction. Uh, and, but, but at the same time, we have this, as a society, we have this uh, f fact that since this is associated with aging, we are going to have a lot of people to, um, to be with. You know, we're going to have to, to deal with this. If, and I think if we, A, stop thinking about it as this uh, simple, you got it or you don't sort of phenomena and appreciate the diversity and sometimes even the possibility for a, for a rich quality of life um, for both. And I know that's not easy. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize how devastating this is. Uh, uh, however, I, I really do think that, um, that we can, if we kind of let up on the stress and fear associated with this condition, we, we can, there, there is possibilities for life, both for the person with dementia and for the people taking care of them. There, that we can maybe start to recognize some possibilities. And we ought to also fund approaches that help, A, support people in uh, dealing with this. Uh, why we don't have long-term care, you know, you could really, in this country, you could really uh, wonder, you know. But one reason is every, uh, we have um, uh, um, health advocacy that's oriented around diseases. The Alzheimer's folks go for their research money. The cancer folks go for their research money. The, you know, all, every, everyone in their own little thing. And, and what's ignored is what would in fact help us all. So you literally, if you read the literature in, in health voluntaries, you will see charts comparing what do we spend against Alzheimer's, against cancer, against AIDS, and so on. And don't these idiots in Washington realize that our disease is the most important, right? Th that, uh, that fragments the obvious constituency, all of whom would benefit from long-term care. So that's, that's, a, that's a real problem. Uh, and then there's these creative approaches, like I just described with time slips. We ought to support that kind of work to, to, to help come up with you know, more positive ways uh, to deal with this. Yes? Realize that there are multiple intelligence, multiple ways to, to teach students, and mm -hmm. it seems like we're just scratching the surface of what goes on the southern end, and it, it might be equally complex. And we, and we ought to think of how those two paths are connected, and maybe that's yeah, where you're going. Yeah. I ran into somebody last week in an airport, and, and just in passing, he's an Alzheimer's character, and he told me about um, the application of Montessori technique to caregiving, and it sounded very interesting and very promising, but it's not out there in the general I haven't heard in particular about Montessori. Um, I, one thing really interesting that uh, Peter Whitehouse is involved in, it's a charter school in Cleveland, Ohio called the Intergenerational School. And uh, what it does is brings, um, it's an inner city charter school and it has children at risk uh, for basically being you know, left behind uh, by an educational system and, and having all sorts of problems early in life. Uh, it's housed in an elder care uh, facility, so they draw on a lot of volunteers from the community uh, who are at risk for, for sort of cognitive uh, uh, abilities. And the theory is that, um, you know, that sort of um, involvement will help both, uh, will help both um, populations. So that's pretty, I, I find it... Uh, very exciting, encouraging sort of approach. So that's the that's one approach I've heard of. But I think you're absolutely right. We need to think about uh, the sort of the whole uh, life course, um, and not just you know the end of it or you know w one extreme or the other. Yeah. So in the you're saying that it's intangibles rather than a productivity that we do all of our lives or that we judge. Certainly, there's there's some pretty persuasive research that. Uh, that a rich cognitive environment throughout life, you know, you've, you've, maybe many of you have heard about the Nun study, you know, that, that uh, used uh, the writings of um, a group of nuns um, over a long period of time to, to look at and try to understand uh, cognitive uh, deterioration later in life. And what they were able to um, uh, correlate was uh, richer sort of uh, writing style, more elaborate, more, uh, more sort of complex uh, forms of writing 
uh, quite aside from, from any sort of um, uh, aesthetic uh, judgments about that, but that appeared to be correlated with less dementia. You could wonder whether what's not, a couple, what doesn't come out of that study is, and you could interpret it either way, is whether there's something about people who, uh, who, who write more sort of at a, uh, a biological level that makes them have less dementia, or just as possible, whether something about the process and being engaged in writing that way is in fact preventative. And I don't think, you know, people make cases about that one way or another, but that's, there's a lot of research that looks at brain plasticity uh, and looks at uh, things like writing, reading, social engagement, um, doing crossword puzzles. I mean, there are studies doing crossword puzzles as a preventative, uh, as, as, as a means of prevention for dementia. So, yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, which uh, favors uh, discrete families over right. extended families. Right. Um, lot of, a lot of points there. Um, um, let me begin with, with, with uh, your, your historical one, though, because I would actually challenge the idea that um, We've, it's always sort of been a universal, like, fearful thing. Um, if you look, and as I have, um, I'm mostly a modern historian, so, but, the, the, but, but I, I, you look back in uh, early sort of colonial history, look at sermons or look at early medical tracts, and you find things that today, you, you read them and you just go, well, this is weird. Like, for instance, um, uh, Benjamin Rush, most famous uh, uh, American physician of the revolutionary era, so you know the, the elite doctor. He wrote a tract on uh, the problems of old age, um, and and um, what's particularly interesting is he listed dementia as, as it was sort of like an afterthought, tagged on. Oh, and yes, these people often lose their memories, but. Although people, though I observed many old people, I can't quite quote this, but, but this is pretty close to, to his quote. Although I've observed many older people who have uh, lost their memories, in some cases almost entirely, I have never, never encountered, encountered one who was diminished in their um, intellectual faculties, which is interesting, because there he meant judgment but also in their moral faculties, okay? Um, and so for sure that he was viewing what it means to be a person somewhat different than we do, because I, I mean, that's just kind of weird. We don't, I don't hear anyone, I, don't, and I, I followed the Alzheimer's debate pretty closely, I don't see that distinction made too often. Uh, but, but it's from a kind of moral self which is intact in his view to, an intellectual, uh, to a memory which is not terribly important to him. Uh, and that, also separate from a judging capacity, which he also felt was usually intact. So yeah, people lose their memories, but who cares? And I also, you know, and, and another quote, and you could, today we would view it as just sort of a self-deprecating joke, but I actually think there's really no irony in, in the way this is written, where, where um, it was Alfred uh, Benizé, a Philadelphian, uh, prominent uh, uh, Quaker elite, um, Anyway, uh, he said, uh, you know, I have an advantage being old. Um, uh, you read a book, you, you youngsters, and you forget it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're stuck with it. You read it, you're, you're done. I read the book, I forget it so quick, I can just read it again. And uh, I don't think it was a senior moment joke. I mean, I actually think that it was not frightening to him in a way that it is now. So I actually do think that if you look back in history, uh, Certainly there were different feelings about it. No one ever thought it was wonderful to lose your memory or, you know, so you're certainly right about that. But since productivity was not so crucial, you know, pro the, the emphasis on productivity is a fairly modern thing. You used to be born into your social status. And so, you know, anyway. But the capacity to think is abridged by uh, a narrowed memory. Because the more things you can hold in your mind at once, the more disparate things you can you can find connections and and, and you can think more in depth. 
I agree with you, but I would, uh, yes, uh, I would just say that thinking, cognition itself, is, uh, is not uniformly the, uh, the pinnacle of human, in, in human history. You look at human cultures, uh, even our own, Western culture, thinking, cognitive ability, has not always been the most essential or important feature of being a human. I think it is now, and I think you're absolutely right. It is now, but it wasn't, uh, say, in the, uh, it was much less so in the, even as, as recent as the 17th century. If you go way back, I don't even think it's that. Well, I'm going I'm to abandon the historical point, I, but I, I, I just will agree to, uh, to disagree. But I certainly agree with you that thinking, cognitive ability is the essence of being human now. Yes. Do you have a formal definition of all science? <laughs> well, I don't, but it's not my job. <laughs> um, no, I don't think there is one that exists for, this, for the sort of reasons um, you said. You mean you can look in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, and you will see a, a definition. It's essentially like most mental. Uh, uh, or um, neurological disorders, it's uh, because the mechanism is not understood, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a threshold disease and it's a, a, um, a disease of um, inclusion. So you get uh, three, you know, it's kind of a Chinese menu disease. You got three, you know, three items from list A and three items from list B and you add them up and if it reaches a certain threshold, the person has dementia. There, what there is not is a pathological definition. If you have this pathology, you have the disease. You know, the, 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 uh, and the testing, yes, yeah, yeah, so, so the testing, it's threshold. Uh, if you fall below a certain, certain um, uh, level on a cognitive score over time, and, you, and the physician cannot find any other reason to account for the decline, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You look for other things that could account for the problem. If you can't find them, then, then it's Alzheimer's.